0: I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream podcast, where we explore what you need to know about the intersection of science, technology, and society. This is Episode 16. So, my department at Virginia Tech, Electrical and Computer Engineering, recently filled a new tenure-track faculty search position for someone in Quantum Photonics who can do research in quantum photonic devices and circuits, entangled photon sources, quantum sensing, quantum communications and cryptography, and nanophotonics. This faculty hire is in part to create a new program for the department in quantum engineering and to help advance the university's effort for becoming an Association of American Universities member. What is a normalized and applied discipline today in quantum engineering, until the 1970s, quantum mechanics was in many ways an obscure area of science. The book How the Hippies Saved Physics by David Kaiser argues that a group of hippies who formed the Fundamental Physics Group, FFG, were largely responsible for saving physics by focusing attention on a key theorem known as Bell's Theorem, which has fundamentally changed our understanding for how the universe works, especially at the quantum scale. While institutional support today for quantum research is growing, if not profuse, Kaiser notes that this was definitely not the case for the FFG physicists in the 1970s. In fact, the FFG physicists had to be quite entrepreneurial In seeking funding in the face of institutions that ignored or even hindered their efforts, which in turn affected the kinds of science they were able to do. So, in today's podcast episode, I want to look at who were the fundamental physics group physicists, and what were their goals, and which types of institutions helped the FFG physicists to conduct and disseminate their unconventional scientific work, which institutions ignored or hindered them, and what they accomplished. Okay, so let's dive in. The book we are basing today's discussion on is How the Hippies Saved Physics by David Kaiser. This book was published in 2011 and was named Book of the Year by Physics World magazine. Kaiser is the Germa Professor of the History of Science in MIT's Program in Science and Technology and Society. He's also a professor of physics in MIT's Department of Physics, and he's also an associate dean for social and ethical responsibilities of computing in MIT's Schwarzman College of Computing. Kaiser has a number of research interests, particularly in the history of science and in particle cosmology, and he's written a number of award winning books and publications. As noted in the book, The roots of quantum information science stretch all the way back to the golden age of theoretical physics of the 1920s and 1930s, when giants like Albert Einstein, Niels Bohr, Werner Heisenberg, and Erwin Schrödinger cobbled quantum mechanics together. These giants of physics wrestled not only with measurement, but also meaning, how to interpret, the fact that quantum elements like light and electrons sometimes acted like particles and sometimes like waves. Einstein and others were trained not only in the mathematics, but also philosophy and culture. And this education foundation and training helped them lay the foundation for modern physics. However, World War II, and especially the Cold War, changed the nature of physics in the U.S., As the number of physics jobs diminished in the late 1960s and early 1970s after the U.S. government pulled funding for much of physics research, the book says, Very quickly, philosophical inquiry or open-ended speculation of the kind that Bohr, Einstein, Heisenberg, and Schrodinger had considered a prerequisite for serious work on quantum theory got shunted aside. Shut up and calculate became the new rallying cry for U.S. physics. It is in this philosophically sterile period of physics in the U.S. in the 1970s that the book mostly takes place. The heroes of the book are the physicists and members of what came to be known as the Fundamental Physics Group. And I'll I'll just make a note that you can't see this in the podcast audio, but they spelled physics as F-Y-S-I-C-S. So Fundamental Physics Group creates the acronym FFG. The group started in the spring of 1975 when physicists such as Elizabeth Rauscher, John Clauser, Saul Paul Sirag, Nick Herbert, Henry Stapp, Fred Allen Wolf, and Jack Sarfati, as well as numbers of others, made their way to the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory for informal Friday afternoon discussions to discuss, in particular, how to interpret strange behaviors that occur at the quantum scale what Einstein called spooky actions at a distance. Not all but many of these folks were researchers on the fringes of mainstream physics, hippies who found each other in the hazy, countercultural smoke and good vibrations of Berkeley. One key idea in quantum mechanics, called entanglement, is that two or more quantum particles actually can behave as if they are a combined system even when those particles are far away from each other. In other words, affecting one of the particles causes an effect in the other separate particle, instantaneously, as if the two separate particles were somehow joined or working together. In the 1930s, Albert Einstein had thought that these entangled particles must either be choreographed in advance or somehow there is some hidden force or hidden variable affecting the particles in real time. He thought it cannot be the case that the particles are otherwise connected. He referred to that case as spooky action at a distance. However, in 1964, physicist John Bell proved just that. Measuring particle A would affect particle B, even if the particles were on opposite sides of the universe. This is quite a profound result, and even today physicists do not fully understand what is going on. But back in Berkeley, the members of the FFG group had discovered Bell's theorem, at the time not well known, and immediately began thinking about its implications, including even thoughts of mind control, ESP, and telepathy. They were seeking connections between physics and consciousness. The problem, however, is that mainstream physics was firmly in its shut-up-and-calculate mindset at the time, and the FFG group members did not have traditional academic institutional support for their efforts. So, in order to conduct and disseminate their unconventional research, members of the FFG sought and found funding and support, opportunities largely from the U.S. government, private donors, philanthropical foundations, and the general public. The Central Intelligence Agency, for example, funded experiments in remote viewing, which involved experiments investigating whether an individual in one location could telepathically receive messages from another individual, even when the individuals were far apart. But more support came from the patronage of private donors and philanthropical foundations. Toy manufacturer Henry Dakin and Arthur Young of the Institute for the Study of Consciousness helped support group members for years. Werner Erhard, the founder of EST Training, which was one of the human potential movements of the time, in particular supported the group's research efforts by bankrolling the Physics Consciousness Research Group. Similarly, wealthy eccentric George Koopman financed a number of the group's seminars. And the Esalen Institute also aided the FFG researchers, in part by hosting annual workshops on physics and consciousness, bringing together diverse audiences, including Richard Feynman, while providing a platform for the FFG researchers. Activist and later convicted killer Ira Einhorn helped FFG members get the word out about their ideas by distributing their articles to Einhorn's influential personal mailing list, as well as by promoting new books to be published, which paved the way for a new genre of physics, mysticism, and human potential books. This allowed the general public to support FFG members in part by turning Fritjof Kapra's The Tao of Physics and Gary Zukov's the Dancing Wu-Li Masters, into international bestsellers. And Nick Herbert wrote a popular textbook used for years in undergraduate classes called Quantum Reality, Beyond the New Physics. Again, these entrepreneurial and eclectic funding efforts were necessary because more mainstream or traditional institutional support was largely not available to the FFG group members, as we previously discussed and the mainstream physics culture certainly did not approve of the group's more philosophical and interpretive efforts to understand the meaning behind strange quantum behaviors. Not only were there almost no faculty positions available suitable for their research, though Henry Stapp and John Clauser were rare group members able to work as physicists, but mainstream physics journals were also hostile to many of the group's ideas. For example, the new journal, Foundations of Physics, created by physicist Henry Margineau, did publish some of the FFG members' articles, but the more mainstream journal Science, for example, even refused to publish Margineau's letter to the editor, linking ESP and quantum mechanics. Some physics researchers and academics, in fact, even campaigned against efforts of the group. For example, physicist John Wheeler and popular science writer Martin Gardner published the article, Quantum Theory and Quack Theory. And Wheeler, elsewhere, lectured about the baselessness of any sort of connection between quantum mechanics and consciousness. However, as a result of the FFG group's creative opportunism, the FFG physicists were able to merge their research interests with the cultural zeitgeist of the time. Tapping into the public's psychedelic creativity and need for finding meaning in life especially in California in the 1970s. The nature of their patronage shaped the resulting science by making it more relatable, less stodgy, and more fun. Their research had to capture the attention of a more general public audience than if they had been bound by more traditional institutional support. As noted in the book, for years on end, members of the group organized workshops and conferences freely mixing the latest countercultural delights Everything from psychedelics like LSD to Eastern mysticism and psychic mind reading with a heavy dose of quantum physics. In a sense, they created a physics that captured the philosophical musings about the nature of the universe practiced by Einstein, Bohr, and Heisenberg. Instead of shut up and calculate, they practice a science of speak up and speculate. Even better they were able to find patrons and sponsors for their efforts, which gives some measure of hope to beleaguered researchers today in less trendy fields. What did this group of countercultural researchers achieve? Well, today we talk about quantum cryptography, which is largely due to group member John Clauser, who conducted the first experiment that confirmed Bell's theorem. Follow-on work by others resulted in the no-cloning theorem, which is a fundamental principle of quantum cryptography. Also, for years, the members of the Fundamental Physics group were the main publishers of research on Bell's theorem and quantum entanglement, way before most physicists were even aware of the topic. And they helped create and normalize research into quantum mechanics, which is today normalized, for example, in my department as quantum engineering. So, while the book's title, How the Hippies Saved Physics, is a little over-the-top, much like Thomas Cahill's How the Irish Saved Civilization, the book does shine an interesting and entertaining spotlight on researchers largely ignored by mainstream physics. The larger question, to me, that I think this book raises is, what can we get out of the more grounded interpretive mode of working with science and technology versus the shut-up-and-calculate mode that was commonplace then and that continues today? Today, we are feeling the results of the move fast and break things mentality of big tech. A way of engineering devoid of the grounding effects of critiquing the meaning, value, and effect of technology on society. I don't think this book offers a template or model for us to follow. I'm not suggesting that becoming hippies and attending closed optional physics and technology workshops in Berkeley is the answer. However enjoyable Kaiser's book is, I think that would be the wrong takeaway today. Instead, I am suggesting there is more to the meaning of life and society's use of technology than can be computed by a calculator, and that perhaps we might want to therefore look at how we train our scientists and engineers today. Perhaps there are important elements of how Einstein, Bohr, Heisenberg, and Schrodinger were taught that have been lost, and perhaps there are new strategies and approaches that have yet to be found. Searching for those lost and yet-to-be-found elements is actually what I'm doing in part with this Techno Slipstream podcast. And on that note, I've got more searching to do. So for now, we'll wrap up episode 16. Thank you for listening and please head over to patreon.com slash Kendall Giles to our Patreon page to sign up and give us some support. In addition to supporting the show, You can sign up to get show transcripts, including links to the articles and books discussed in each episode, as well as additional writings. In any case, thank you for listening, and until next time, I'll see you in the Techno Slipstream.